welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Hopefully on this Tuesday you're listening. Um, so we know that last week we said we were going to do an episode on Chromatica, the Lady Gaga 6 album that was recently released. And we are still going to do that eventually, but in this moment, we kind of wanted to reevaluate our schedule. It didn't really feel right to talk about Chromatica right now. So if you're listening to this episode in June 2020 when it's released, or if you are listening to it at a later point in time, we really want to take this time to evaluate ourselves and the show and have a discussion and share and take in knowledge about black art, black artists, and the history of protest art and why it is important. If we say we want to help and we say that we want to be part of the change and we want to support the black community, our friends and family in this moment and later down the line, this means using what we have and using this podcast to actually make a change and actively be part of that solution. And we don't want that to stop, right? So we don't have just one discussion on this or share one post or donate to one institution and call it good. This is absolutely continual. And we should be held to the standards that we ask of everybody else. So for us and for white people, this means evaluating what kind of content is produced, what type of content we take in, And absolutely questioning that. There is a really big disturbance happening across endless kinds of outlets right now, whether that's visual, media-based, discussion-based. And it's necessary to not only question these outlets, but hold them accountable. And I want to actually thank one of our listeners, Isabella, who tweeted at us that she wanted an episode about Black art and artists. So I think it's really important to demand inclusive content from your various outlets and institutions. Accountability and follow-through matter. So this includes us. It includes the type of artworks that we not only take in, but what we share and what we talk about. That goes for a personal level, too. You know, I was thinking about The Bachelor. And when it comes to popular culture that I like and I enjoy, it's no surprise that Gianna and I have... Talked about how we love the Bachelor franchise, but we complain about the lack of diversity in the show all the time, you know, on top of other kind of weird things that (laughs) happen in The Bachelor. But um, this week I've been really thinking like, okay, what am I going to do about that? You know, Rachel Lindsay is the only black lead on The Bachelor franchise and that matters. And if I want to continue to watch the show, that means I need to call them out. And that means like holding things that I like accountable. If I want to enjoy it, I need to do something about it. And this week, I've really been scrutinizing the type of content that I take in. And I want to make sure that if we're starting this show and we're doing this podcast, we do it right from the beginning. And I think we hold ourselves accountable and people should hold us accountable too. Yeah, absolutely. So on top of everything, such as reassessing what kind of businesses or programs or platforms we are using, whether it's a news outlet, an entertainment show, we are also having those difficult conversations with our families. Mm -hmm. Bianca and I are fortunate to have a very like-minded family, to have people in our lives that we know we can hold each other accountable through shared knowledge, education, and conversation. But it's important to acknowledge that just because we come from a background where we were taught how to practice inclusivity, we were raised in a progressive home, it doesn't excuse us from having those difficult conversations. Totally. Because as we discovered the other night, our family does agree on these larger and pressing issues at hand, but we are all mentally coping and practicing advocacy in different ways on an individual level at the same time. So for example, one way in which I have thought or have been thinking about the death of George Floyd differently from others perhaps is that his daughter's name is Gianna. And the only reason why I bring this up is because I know what it's like to grow up without a father. But, of course, the situations are completely different. At a certain point, my father's cancer, our father's cancer, was terminal and his death was inevitable. But the murder of George Floyd should have been preventable. 
So I mentioned my boyfriend in the last episode who is very much a member of this family, but I didn't mention that Theban is a person of color. He is a Malaysian Indian and he is an immigrant. In our relationship, we have had those difficult conversations about our culture, our gender, and our racial differences. We both are very conscious that we are in an interracial relationship and that we are an interracial couple, but it isn't a constant point for us in which we discuss on a daily basis, right? Mm -hmm. But now we are starting to have those conversations about how the way we navigate the Black Lives Matter movement will always be different than mine. His Mm -hmm. perspective will be different and mine will be different because I will never know what it is like to be a person of color. Right. So something that we want to encourage is absolutely having tough conversations with the people in your life. And, you know, Gianna was saying, we're having conversations here at home and we're all on the same side and and it's difficult for us to kind of navigate that. So we understand that it's difficult to confront the people you love, the people who raised you, the people who provide for you. However, that is not an excuse not to talk about civil rights, not to talk about human rights. We have got to confront this if we are going to dismantle white supremacy. And you will probably be uncomfortable in doing so. Especially if you're a white person, you should feel very uncomfortable with these conversations, I think. But imagine the displacement and the discomfort of black people, people of color, indigenous communities, immigrants, minorities, LGBTQIA plus people that they face every single day for centuries because of the discomfort that I, that we, that you and your friends and family have put them in. And it's our fault. And you can do something by talking about it, even though it's hard and it's uncomfortable. And if you have like-minded friends and family, don't take that for granted. Still keep up those conversations. I think it's important to talk with Black people, with other people of color, with people who are not like you, and really listen and learn from them and what they have to say. Diversity makes us better and inclusivity makes us stronger. And I wanted to highlight, if you're maybe looking for a place to start, Gail King did a CBS This Morning interview with NFL player Emmanuel Acho, and he started an IGTV series called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, and he just kind of talks you through a lot of these questions that white people have asked him, and I found it really really interesting, really engaging, and I don't know, he has such a wonderful way of of talking you through these questions, even though it's just on Instagram. Yeah, the videos he's putting out are really great, and he said in the interview with Gail, he just sat down and just started talking. It wasn't anything that was particularly scripted, and he just speaks very honestly and openly and such a wonderful way, so that's definitely worth a watch. Yeah, for sure. So all of that being said, today we are going to talk about some history, a protest start, about this kind of revolutionary imagery, black art and artists you can and definitely should follow. Again, this is a podcast and the nature of this platform means that we are not able to cover everything in one episode. And to be clear, this is just one of many continual conversations that we want to have and We're not talking about this today because we have to, and we're not talking about this just because of the pressure of the moment, it's because we want to. And no, we didn't have this episode planned for this week, but Gianna and I started this podcast because we want to talk about art and pop culture and current events and the way that art history is relatable. We want to make art history relevant, and that means responding to our surroundings. This moment is art history in the making and I want to be a part of it. So we love doing this. There are a lot, a lot of resources out there for you on history, politics, philosophy, science, healthcare, infrastructure, all these different things that you can be a part of. And all of those absolutely tie into art history. And that's the wonderful thing about art is that it tells a multitude of stories and artists look at social issues from so many different perspectives. But This is an arts and pop culture podcast, so we are trying to 
confine our conversations as much as we can just to make sure that we're not going completely off the deep end. There's so, so much to learn, but we want to make sure that we also have some sort of direction for our episodes because (laughs) as Gianna and I discovered, it's easy to, when you want to learn so much and take in so much information, get kind of carried away and, (laughs) you know, go down all these different rabbit holes. So, all right, are we ready? I think we are ready. Perfect. Okay, so here we go. I was thinking about this kind of historical moment that we are living in and why I hope that this moment feels very different. And maybe that means because more people have the means to go out and protest with not being at work because of COVID. But I had an internet friend share some art historical imagery on revolutions paired with these current photos from protests. And I started questioning the kind of verbiage that we're using to talk about these current events. And I wonder how those will play out in terms of our art historical understanding of them. So some of these were images like Delacroix's 1830 Liberty Leading the People from the French Revolution or the 1851 painting of Washington crossing the Delaware. And the photographs from the current protests look and feel so revolutionary, and especially when you compare them to these quote-unquote masterworks. Um, So I was just kind of thinking about this question of what does the word revolution really mean, and does that word have a positive association with a type of white war or white or Western violence? Is what's happening now revolutionary? Are these riots or protests revolutionary? And what are the consequences of using these different terms to describe these actions? Yeah, I think some really kind of important questions to lay the groundwork for everything that we're going to be getting into. So just kind of thinking about those questions in your head as we move forward. Mm -hmm. So in starting off for today, we wanted to start with the I am a man known as the strike that brought Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to Memphis. And before I go into it, I wanted to first start by addressing through my own research, I found very... um, conflicting information about this moment in the civil rights movement uh, amongst credible articles. Mm -hmm. So I do believe that I have found the factual information, but I think it was important to note that there was some contradictory information that I was finding uh, prior to today's episode. So when these moments, these contradictory facts kind of come up, I will acknowledge them throughout the topic Um, just to preface for today. Yeah, I think whenever you were telling me all of these different sources were kind of saying different things, that's pretty telling. I mean, why is it that we have... I mean, the differences in timing seemed just so wild in talking about this strike. All of that information pretty much stayed the same, but when it it comes to uh, dates and matters of money and exactly when Martin Luther King died after this strike, that information was um, conflicting on the internet. That's which I pretty found unbelievable. Pretty shocking. So yeah. I think it's important to like acknowledge that and through my research I think that I have found the like correct answers. Okay. But just to again preface before we get into it. So On February 12, 1968, the streets and the sewers were overwhelmingly flooded from the heavy rain. Still, sanitation workers, which were all black men, were required to continue working amongst the downpour. Two sanitation workers by the names of Eco Cole and Robert Walker took shelter from the rain in the back of their garbage truck. As Cole and Walker rode in the back of the truck, an electrical switch malfunctioned. So there was a compactor and it turned on and Cole and Walker were crushed by the garbage truck compactor. The Public Works Department of Memphis refused to compensate their families. And this is where we get into a little bit of contradictory information. Mm -hmm. Um, It is to my belief that actually there was a $500 a funerary expense given to each of the families. But other than that, that was it. No other additional compensation. So this started a strike by the black sanitation workers and a protest against the horrible working conditions, the abuse, the racism, and the discrimination by the city. And this is what led to the arrival 
of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. prior to his assassination, which to my knowledge was two months after this first strike. Some of my sources were telling me this happened as little as one week after. Mm -hmm. Um, But according to the Civil Rights Digital Archive, it was two months. So I think that I trust their credentials the most. Yeah. What were the other sources that you were looking at? The Washington Post. Okay. And And then another one? And another one that I I will list below. But the two major ones I ended up honing in on were the Washington Post and the Civil Rights Digital Archive. Okay. Again, pretty much the obviously the the unfoldings of this event were the same, but some dates were confusing on the yeah. Washington Post, such as they said the first strike was February first. Um, That's crazy. But looking at the historical marker in Memphis, that sign says February twelfth, and okay. the Civil Rights Digital Archive says February twelfth. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about the famous I am a man protest sign, which can be described as using a very simple typography in either bold red or black color on a white background. So what is this phrase trying to communicate? Because it's not even fair to say that these sanitation workers were working under simply harsh conditions, right? They were working under inhumane conditions, earning as little as 75 cents an hour. So, I am a man is a phrase that was directly taken and transformed based on the 18th and 19th century signs of protest posing the question, am I not a man and a brother, used by abolitionists. So, in turn, this strike, this phrase in the civil rights movement, takes black power and control back by answering their own question, stating, yes, I am a man and I'm a human being. Mm -hmm. So, again, referring to the Washington Post, they um, actually included um, a quote that I wanted to share by a sanitation worker by the name of James Douglas from the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employee Documentary, (laughs) long title, (laughs) saying, We felt we would have to let the city know that because we were sanitation workers, we were human beings. The signs we were carrying said, I am a man, and we were going to demand the same dignity and the same courtesy as any other citizen that Memphis had. Also, the Reverend James Lawson, um, who was an ally of King, said at a news conference, when a public official orders a group of men to get back to work and then will talk and treats them as though they are not men, that is a racist point of view. And no matter how you dress it up in terms of whether or not a union can organize it, it is still racism. At the heart of racism is the idea a man is not a man. Mm -hmm. And that quote is from the Washington Post as well. So President Lyndon B. Johnson ordered that James Reynolds, who was the Undersecretary of Labor at the time, to negotiate the end of the strike. Mm -hmm. And on April 8th, um, King's widow led more than 40,000 people in a silent march through the streets of Memphis, where her husband led his last march. And then finally, on April 16th, uh, the Memphis City Council voted to recognize the union and promising higher wages to the black workers. And then the strike was over. So before we move on, I wanted to highlight one of the photographers and photojournalists by the name of Ernest Withers, who I learned about on the Birmingham Museum of Art website, um, as they did a 2013 retrospective on him and the I'm a Man protest. Withers began documenting um, events and people in his immediate community in Memphis, and his ties within the Memphis Black community afforded him that proximity to the central figures of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. He eventually became the movement's most widely published photographer, and he not only documented the I Am A Man protest and the sanitation worker strike, but he also traveled with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and he covered the Emmett Till murder trial, which helped to bring national attention to racial violence taking place during the 1950s. I'm so glad to see that he had um, a retrospective at the Birmingham Museum. I think it's so fascinating to see the kind of art that's produced, you know, by protesters or by artists in these times, but then photojournalism and photojournalists have that other perspective that just adds a multitude of layers and uh, viewpoints to all these different things. And I think 
that's really when you look at photojournalism it captures so much more maybe than um than the work of art itself can do sometimes right absolutely because he he's also just a really interesting figure that I myself didn't know about until I started this particular research but he started as an amateur photographer and then he ended up training um at the army school of photography in north carolina and so then he got you know more formal training through the army and then became increasingly more interested in photojournalism and was able to record these uh amazing and significant moments um, in our history that need to be acknowledged so if you're interested in learning more about him you can visit the ernest withers museum and collection website The museum is in Memphis, and it's located in his last and his original photography studio, which is really interesting. Also, original posters of the I Am A Man can be found at the Smithsonian and the National Civil Rights Museum. On top of that, appropriated contemporary works by the artist Glenn Ligon, who is a conceptual artist that engages in intertextuality, which means the relationship between texts with other works from visual arts, literature, and history, as well as its own life. His works can be found at both the MoMA and the Whitney Museum of Art. Yeah, uh, Whitney must have been like two or three summers ago now. They had a whole show on protest art that I went to go see it was really, really cool, and I saw one of those I Am A Man pieces at the protest show, and I think the way that they contextualized it was pretty good for the Whitney, I guess. <laughs> um, and I also wanted to talk about that word, intertextuality. Yeah, isn't that such, such a, a good, good word? word? I had no idea about this word, but it makes so much sense. When you're talking about the idea of appropriation and what you are appropriating is a a sign, a a text, a a protest sign. It's not, it it goes beyond another level talking about how the sign of protest is affecting races then and now, Mm -hmm. but what does the evolution of that text mean? Intertextuality. And I think it just is, oh, it's just another word I love so much. Again, like you said, with intersectionality, these cross-disciplinary movements and the spread of information, and I just that's something I am so fascinated by is the relationship between word and image and how a word or a letter becomes a work of art and how you take that text at kind of face value instead of reading the text like you would you know uh, an essay or a poem or something Mm -hmm. like that you're looking at it visually and just for me who studies visual arts I find Mm -hmm. so much more impactful and I think with all these protest signs we're I love seeing kind of the the cleverness and the play on words and the play on text and those double meanings Mm -hmm. and I was also thinking about clearly intertextuality plays into the I am a man phrase that was used by abolitionists but I was also kind of thinking what does that phrase I am a man mean in terms of you know documentation by the United States government I mean I think that the rights of man are such a that's such an interesting phrase and I also think that it excludes women I am a man looking at it now perhaps from a more contemporary context this it's important to acknowledge the phrase and where it came from and how invaluable that is when looking at these protest signs and these images and all of them kind of combined together mm-hmm. as one. But I also wonder or think about what the word man means for women in this country too. Right. Um, and black women and women of color and indigenous women. How are women part of this human existence or this American identity? Right. Where do they fit in? Because of course, right, it makes sense at the time using this I am a man as all the sanitation workers were black men, of course. Right. But now that we are seeing these signs come mm-hmm. to life in current protests, and what does a man mean? And I think acknowledging that we would like to acknowledge that what it means and what it can encompass should Mm be, I'm a human being. Right. Right. Yeah. And that also goes true for what they were trying to use I I Am A Man for at its original time as well. And I also think typography too is so interesting in the context of protest art that if you are 
interested in making protest art like in my prints when I use text it's you have to be aware of what kind of letter font that you're using Mm -hmm. because that could have been used before and it's something to not be overlooked like I should not be using the font in I am a man if I don't want to directly engage that Mm -hmm. protest in the conversation yeah so it's just something interesting to think about and I think that yeah with these it's I am a man, oftentimes in black block text against Mm -hmm. a stark white painted panel or poster sign. And that, that weight, again, that the visual or the aesthetics of the typography hold when you read it are so impactful. And I look at protest signs that are made today, and it's funny because they're you know, the protest signs that we see today are are fascinating in their kind of depth. Mm -hmm. And they convey so many different emotions and span so many different topics but it's funny when you see like memes or protest signs that use like comic sans Mm -hmm. as a font you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like that thinking about the way that a font conveys humor or emotion and these I'm a man signs are just so poignant and and stark and in your face like they demand attention Mm -hmm. which is I guess just I don't know. I just I just love looking at them and thinking about the power that they hold and thinking about this is exactly why words matter. Mm-hmm. Your words matter. Other words from other people matter. Right. Yeah, and I think that that really feeds really well into the next topic. Yeah. So, in thinking about this kind of reusing of these words and how they've been used by artists like Glenn Lycan and how everyday protesters and activists continue to use these word and image aesthetics, I want to talk about the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. This took place within about the 24-hour span from May 31st through June 1st in 1921 in the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So that made just the other day the 99th anniversary And this area of Tulsa was once called Black Wall Street. So over 35 blocks of mostly black homes and businesses were firebombed. It was one of the wealthiest black communities in the United States. Hundreds of people were detained or shot or killed. So I was reading a Human Rights Watch report on the case for reparations in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And when you open the report, the leading image at the top is this photo from 2019 by Ian Mall, who is from the Tulsa world. And we see Reverend Robert Turner of the historic African Methodist Episcopal Church, which was damaged in the 1921 massacre. And he is leading this sort of pilgrimage from the church to Tulsa City Hall, demanding reparations now. And it's so striking because the reverend is the leading figure in this image and he has like a a microphone and it's very powerful. And there is a young black boy carrying a black and white sign with the text, I am a man. And this is 2019. And from the image, it looks like Maybe the boy is, like, around 10 or so. Like, he appears to be young. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And seeing this image just makes you think about this boy growing up to eventually be a black man in this country and what that kind of text means for this boy historically and in the present state as a protester or an activist or on this pilgrimage through the city of Tulsa. And, you know, you question if he will make it to adulthood and if this racial trauma from slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, the Tulsa massacre, if that has forced him into adulthood sooner than he should have to. And I think it's so telling that these posters with the text, I am a man have continued to be so powerful and are continually reused and they just carry so much weight and this image is just incredibly striking. As a side note, I think it's important to say that reparations have not been paid to the victims, their families, or descendants. In the 2019 HBO series Watchmen, the show actually suggests an alternative history unlike what actually happened 
reparations have been paid to victims and their descendants in the show. And then resentment about this kind of lingers among white supremacists. So if you have HBO, check that out. I remember when that was coming out and I remember like local news talking about it Mm -hmm. and not understanding like what was happening in this show yeah, and having to like go and educate myself on what was happening. Um, Right. Really interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there is an artist that I have had the great pleasure of meeting. Her name is Crystal Z. Campbell. She is a fourth year Tulsa Artist Fellow who lives and works in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Side note, if you are an Oklahoma artist or you live in Tulsa, definitely check out Tulsa Artist Fellowship. They're a really amazing organization um, and they have a lot of great people there. They're fantastic. Yeah. So Crystal is a multidisciplinary artist. She's a filmmaker. She's a writer of African-American, Filipino, and Chinese descents who excavates public secrets through performance, sound, film. She has exhibited internationally in the Netherlands, the Drawing Center, ICA in Philadelphia, Studio Museum of Harlem, Project Row House, and the Sculpture Center, and a bunch of other places. She's incredible. And last year, she came to this seminar class I was taking on hauntology in grad school. And it was really great because as a class, we were able to go to Tulsa and visit the Greenwood District. And again, if you're in Oklahoma or traveling or in Tulsa, go to the Greenwood District and really take a moment to experience that space and read the plaques and be on the street where the businesses were. They, they, in Tulsa, there's a memorial for the massacre, and we were also able to visit Crystal in her studio there in Tulsa. So she also came to our class and spoke about her works Portrait of a Woman 1 and Portrait of a Woman 2 from 2013, which are these unbelievable 3D laser-cut solid glass cubes of HeLa cells that were made with the help of researchers and scientists and what they do is essentially show cells from Henrietta Lacks. And Lacks was an African-American woman whose cancer cells are the source of the HeLa cell line. And it was the first immortalized human cell line and one of the most important cell lines in medical research. An immortalized cell line reproduces indefinitely under these specific conditions. So the HeLa cell line continues to be, to this day, a source of important medical data. What Crystal taught us when she came to our class and was telling us about this work is Lax did not provide consent for being a source or for her cells uh, being the source. It came from a tumor biopsied during her treatment for cervical cancer at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. And this happened in 1951. So these cells were then cultured by a white male biologist who created the cell line. And again, no consent was obtained to culture her cells and nor was she or her family compensated for the extraction of their use. God, that piece is stunning. Stunning and incredible. And it's just so, it's so cool to see sculpture come and intertwine with technology and how she was able to make that, especially in a sense where you're talking about an issue that that deals with racial issues, but it also talks about the medical industry, the evolution Mm -hmm. of technology. So to use technology to make the sculpture itself, I also just think is so interesting. Yeah. And like I said, she came to talk to our hauntology class. So in that course we talked a lot about spirituality and trauma and ghostliness and I wasn't even in that class and I learned so much from that class (laughs) it's incredible Dr. Christina Gonzalez is just brilliant and I just want to thank her too for bringing in Crystal and having these just oh god incredible conversations and I mean this is something that I didn't know about like how how Mm -hmm. is it possible that you know we are people uh, you know and I I don't know thinking about like dad and just who people who have had you know people affected by cancer in their life Mm -hmm. or you know and, and we don't know anything about this it's just it's so crazy and just to think about not only the the little information that is shared but the covering up of Mm -hmm. history and the covering up of black americans and black women and Mm -hmm. 
shielding that knowledge on purpose. Mm -hmm. If you are interested, I started watching HBO actually has like a TV movie called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And Oprah Winfrey plays Henrietta's daughter as she kind of goes through this journey on learning about her mother. So um, if you're interested in this story, check that out. I'm not, I haven't finished it and I'm not exactly sure of the historical accuracies of all of this, but I think it was written or produced by a woman who wrote a book about this. And so the the TV movie um, like follows this woman who like interviews the family and talks to the family. So I think there is probably a book on it as well. Wow. It's on HBO or Hulu right now, so check that out. So Crystal also gave a lecture for the OSU Art Department, and we were able to watch one of her films, and then she gave a really incredible talk after the film about how she uses these objects she finds, and, and her creative process is is just so fascinating the way she navigates the world and navigates these spaces and uncovers just an incredible amount of truth that is often hidden or was intentionally destroyed. She was incredible. I mean, the way she spoke about art and history, just I I can't tell her how much I admire her work. And she was also really, really great. She let us into her studio and it was so nice to also see that back end process because a lot of the times you see the final product or Mm -hmm. you go to an artist talk, but to be in the studio with her and for her to explain how she makes these collages, which we will talk about is so fun. Yeah, our university is really lucky to have really close connections with the Tulsa Fellowship Artist Program. Uh, One of our professors, Chris Ramsey, was um, a Tulsa Fellow artist and through the museum and through the department, we've been able to bring in a number of those artists for like visiting artists workshops and lectures and they've just been such an incredible resource for me as a student and if you haven't been to like First Fridays in Tulsa, um, you can take a walkthrough of the the studios and the facilities and you can meet these artists and talk to them and it's just so wonderful they are just doing amazing things and these artists are producing amazing work I just can't stress that enough yeah and also that's something I mean you should look at engaging with artists going to open studio days and studio Mm -hmm. walks is such a good way for you to have conversations you know because when Mm -hmm you go into a museum or you see something on Instagram, it, it can feel kind of kind of flat and inaccessible. And so, mm-hmm. you know, making that effort to go talk to artists and go into their studio and like ask them questions, I think is just another fantastic way to, to produce meaningful conversations, but learn about other people. Like talking to Crystal, she told, told us so much about her experiences and I love getting that like face-to-face interaction. Right. And I think it's also important, like if you are a local artist or if you are an independent artist like you essentially like those are like your peers those are your colleagues um and we tend to kind of be so segregated and like we do our own thing and you're in your own studio but you also need to know what is happening in the community around you and and you need to know those people too right so so I had obviously known who Crystal was, but she shared this article a few days ago that she wrote for Hyperallergic called 99 Years After the Tulsa Race Massacre, An Artist Reflects, with the subheading, Dear Tulsa, today marks a grim anniversary. Will justice take another 100 years? So in this article, she writes, I'm going to quote her, Despite coming of age in this state and taking mandatory classes on Oklahoma history, I had never heard of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre until I turned 30. By chance, an artist I met in New York City mentioned the massacre in passing. Just shy of a century after the fact, the massacre is now a mandatory part of curriculum in Oklahoma schools. Though the massacre was referred to by many Oklahomans and state officials as the Tulsa Race Riot as recently as 2018, in archives, some newspaper articles about the riot, quote-unquote, are literally punched out or missing from the record. Being from around the Oklahoma City area, I actually did not know about the massacre until I went to college and met people from the Tulsa area. But as part of my Oklahoma public education in Oklahoma history, I was not taught about this event. Were you? Yeah, I was thinking about it and not to my recollection 
I can I cannot remember if I was taught about it and I feel like that's pretty telling and I remember like I said once the HBO Watchmen came out and I had known at this point what the Tulsa massacre was and had taught myself about it but it was interesting to see a lot of my fellow Oklahomans because we were coming up on the anniversary of it sharing things on their stories and using the terminology of the Tulsa race riots and um, it was pretty jarring, pretty intense and sad to know that as a fellow Oklahoman, you're sharing this information because you want to right what is wrong, but you are actually perpetuating misinformation. Yeah, so this is something that I wanted to talk about also. Crystal has continually made work about the Tulsa Massacre, and I had actually just written about one of her works called Notes from Black Wall Street, number 59. And in this article I was writing for Art Focus, maybe two or three weeks ago now, in reference to her statement about it being called a riot instead of a massacre, It was not until I read her article, to be honest, that I realized I was using the wrong verbiage because you hear it in Oklahoma as the race riot and I just wanted to apologize. I don't know if my article or verbiage will be changed in the editing process, but I used the term riot in talking about this event and in conjunction with Crystal's work, but I'm so glad that Crystal wrote this article and pointed it out to me. And then as I read this article and the 99th anniversary was taking place, you know, coverage on the news and things like that, I was so aware of the anchors or the journalists using what verbiage. And again, that goes back to kind of what we talked about at the beginning of the episode was how words matter and how you can be ignorant of these words and I can mistake it thinking that you're sharing correct information and you're not. But again, that is whiteness. That is white history contextualizing these events to benefit them. So Crystal has made work and this series called Notes from Black Wall Street. She says, in this series, I have been compiling 100 archival images from Greenwood before, during, and after the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. She mediates these images through application of tactile layers of paint, she says, like scars atop archival photographs. I offer these works as prompts to mediate on the future of our complicit fictions, suppressed memories, and united histories. These works are just so striking because of those layers of these black and white photographs or images that have this kind of historical and ghostly and haunted presence with these pops of color on top of them, these layers of paint and these different medias. And to me, these layers of paint and bright colors exhibit that exact covering of the past or this masking of trauma. But I think also in maybe an opposite way of looking at it, they can also be seen as a highlight. So bringing color and life and recovering back into these histories. And so she has all these different meanings, I guess, with these different layers. The color, nevertheless, if it's a masking or an uncovering, I think grabs your attention and it therefore forces you to acknowledge these clashing accounts and and those different histories and those um, covering of histories. As an artist, she says she intentionally brings hidden and ignored stories to light. And I think that this series tells a story of community and loss in both historical and in contemporary contexts. And I was thinking about the pandemic and how it continues to impact many Black communities in conjunction with the current demonstrations we're seeing. And I think that Campbell's piece and her work overall just carries such plurality um, in telling past and present stories of togetherness and injustices and Yeah, I think about in her quote, she mentions the layering acting as like scarring the land. And I think that is really interesting when thinking about hauntology and the physicality and the trauma of what it's like to physically scar the landscape Mm -hmm. of Oklahoma. And I think that her, her layering really speaks to that. Yeah, as well. I also wanted to read a quote from her article. She says, Recently, my work, Rooted in the Massacre, was pulled from a high-profile exhibition in Oklahoma. Another potential collaboration regarding the massacre was canceled, with an explanation that Tulsa's sensibilities were quote-unquote peculiar. 
She says, I wondered if support for the organization would be revoked if my work would create discomfort, if it didn't align with the politics of the institution, if it was a history they didn't want to be affiliated with, if it would prompt a conversation that they did not want to have. So again, I think this just illustrates the point about looking to our institutions, our places of work, our fields, our interests, holding them accountable, including museums and galleries. I mean, this is ridiculous that a Tulsa institution or any institution would pull this kind of work. I think her work is incredible and invaluable to the state of Oklahoma. And of course, people around the world and the country, they would do good and Tulsa citizens would do good to think about this and to know about what really happened. And I think even Crystal taught me the, I was using the complete wrong verbiage in talking about this. And that is something that we have got to fix. She asked a lot of really great questions at the end of the article as well. So I'd really encourage you all to read it. She asks if art can reframe one of our state's greatest public secrets. She also talks about ways that we can create justice. And in the end, she says justice is a prerequisite to healing. So definitely read the article. Look at Crystal's work. She is just, I can't like emphasize that enough. I just love her. She is absolutely incredible, but it it's really hard to hear that her work got rejected simply because of its content, content that we should know and that we mm-hmm. should see and learn about an event that wasn't a prevalent part of our education. And if it was taught, we were learning it using the wrong terminology. It's also confusing and frustrating because the next female artist I'm going to talk about is Tatiana Fazla-Lizade, who is also originally from Oklahoma. And she did an exhibition talking about the Black community in Oklahoma City and spoke about current racial injustices in the state. And like Bianca said, it is important to hold museum institutions accountable because it is disturbing that that information and art are being silenced while others seem to somehow make it through the surface. As I dive into Tatiana's work, I want us to think about that, that by having the whole picture and the framework of Oklahoma history, it will change the greater understanding of what her art means and and what it's trying to communicate uh, and simply what it's about. So just prefacing and acknowledging that. Yeah. Let's talk about Tatiana. I love her. Uh, I love her. So yeah, she has been one of me and Bianca's favorite artists for uh, a while now. A long time. A long time. Um, When we were in Feminist Coalition, we wanted to bring her in as a visiting artist. But I know. I actually feel very lucky that I sent an email to her and... It just did I don't think it worked out because we'll talk about it. she's a very busy woman she's working a so hard. Very busy woman. But I would just oh, I would love <laughs> to meet her. So Tatiana Fazla Liza Day, she is a practicing black feminist and activist artist who again is originally from Oklahoma and is one of the most up and coming contemporary feminist artists of today. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, She has received her undergraduate degree um, in Philadelphia at the University of Arts in 2007, and soon after her rise in popularity, her work developed very quickly as she worked to address feminist issues through the use of both street art and activism. She is also an interdisciplinary artist, ranging in mediums from film to drawing to oil painting to reproducing images for the sake of protest and activism. So coming from a trained background in oil painting, once she started to create these larger works addressing sexism or racism, for her, the most important takeaway are the messages she's putting out. So in order for her to reach a larger and wider audience, she doesn't now have to limit herself to just one medium or just one painting. Mm -hmm. So with this in mind, her most well-known concentration is called Stop Telling Women to Smile, which consists of a series of black and white portraits, either depicting herself or other black female figures. Her artistic stylization is very consistent in her figurative work, um, as they can be described as very loose, gestural, sketch-like drawings that capture the likeness, realness, and identity of these women. Mm -hmm. These drawings start small and are blown up to be large and scaled or cut in a variety of different ways depending on the installation and how she's hanging them up. So each 
portrait is coupled with phrases such as stop telling women to smile, women are not seeking attention, or my masculinity isn't a threat to you, and many, many more. In having an open dialogue about their experiences with street harassment, these words, statements, and experiences were given by these women in these portraits to Tatiana so she could share with us this broad spectrum of how women are specifically being affected by gender-based street harassment. These posters are hung up using wheat paste, which is a very common and natural adhesive uh, when putting paper to wall that a lot of activist artists use. Mm -hmm. So not only are these works in Brooklyn where Tatiana now resides, but they can also be spotted in other major cities around the world. Um, and there's some in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really fun to find them. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some on 23rd Street, which yes. is always really fun. Yes. Um, I personally connect to her feminist messages when it comes to her posters and her works of protest due to the fact that these works were impacted by things such as catcalling and, again, this persistence of harassment that women endure constantly. Also, in an article called Tatiana Fazla Lisa Day Cannot Fight Catcalling Alone, she states that her work is rooted in a larger culture of male dominance, which is a perspective that I definitely refer to often. She has another series called A Constant State of Rage, which we shared on our Instagram last week. Yes, and this acknowledges her first emotion when a black person is killed at the hands of a police, which is anger. Uh, In a PBS interview, she speaks about how many people think that using anger is not a constructive way to fuel your art. But for Tatiana, that anger is actually especially important because if you're angry about something, then you need to try to make change happen through your platform, uh, which in her case is her works of protest. Also, referring to my introductory statement um, in which I was addressing her work, I want to talk about the 2019 exhibition Tatiana did with Oklahoma Contemporary called Oklahoma is Black. Again, being from Oklahoma, she highlights her experiences with racism and sexism within the state, as well as other community members in order to create this show. By spending time uh, about a year prior to the exhibition's opening, Tatiana interviewed people mostly from Northeast Oklahoma City uh, in order to bring a better understanding and represent their stories in its true form and to honor the people who have helped create Oklahoma City's community while also acknowledging the discrimination that happens here on a daily basis as well. Uh, These community member portraits stay true to her artistic stylization. They look very similar to Stop Telling Women How to Smile, Mm -hmm. uh, as she again pairs them with these quotes given in an interview process. And that interview process seems to be something that comes up quite a lot for her. It seems to be a very prevalent part of her research and her art. Yeah. In stating the main concept and understanding of the exhibition, Tatiana states, In these interviews and final works, we will see the faces and voices of a people navigating deep-rooted racist environments while also creating beauty and culture in their daily lives. This show is about amplifying current Black lives and current Blackness to honor our Black history and the fact that we are all still here. So as a love letter to Black people and Blackness in Oklahoma, Tatiana wants people to not only feel heard, but also feel seen within this exhibition. As she is an artist that fights for visibility within her work, it is extremely important that we cannot ignore the silencing of other artists who are also trying to speak to the connection of a deeply rooted racist environment and the Oklahoma landscape. That is what visibility means, right? not just acknowledging parts of our history or some people in our community. It means all of it, and it means everyone. Right. So I also remember seeing her piece, America is Black, in Oklahoma City. Um, It was put up in November of 2016. It was a piece of street art that was wheat-pasted in the city, and the stylizing, again, is very similar to her other kind of series. You kind of look at this massive piece against a wall, and you know it's her work, Um. And it's very large. It was on the side of a building. So it's a compilation of these four portraits with the text, America is Black. 
And then below it, it reads, it is native, it wears a hijab, it is Spanish-speaking tongue, it is migrant, it is a woman, it is here, it has been here, and it is not going anywhere. And she said, I think it was an Instagram quote or her Instagram caption for the piece. She said, after the election, I immediately knew I wanted to make some public art during my trip to Oklahoma a few weeks for Thanksgiving. I wanted to make something in a very Republican state that was a challenge to whiteness. So I used a couple of recent drawings, one old drawing, and a drawing that I did the day before installing this of my mother to put together a diverse group of folks. Yeah. And also, Oklahoma is Black was directly inspired by her America is Black title as well. So moving on, if you all have not seen Spike Lee's film, both the 1986 original and the Netflix original remake TV series called She's Gotta Have It, please do so. The original movie is on Netflix as well if Mm -hmm. you're interested in watching it. The first season closely follows the plot of the movie in which we get insight into the life of the main character, Nola Darling. She is a black woman as she talks directly to us as viewers and we get to see how she is navigating, again, being a black female artist in a gentrified Brooklyn and her romantic relationships with three men and one woman. Tatiana is actually the artist and the art consultant for all the works that you will see on the show that Nola, the character, makes. And there are many overlapping themes with the work of Nola and the work of Tatiana that I think is really interesting. Yeah. So, for example, when Nola is being harassed in the street, she starts to make a series of street art with the main slogan, My Name Isn't. And they read, My Name Isn't Baby, My Name Isn't bitch, mama, sweetie, sexy, etc. In creating this work addressing street harassment is what gets this character's work acknowledged by the community as well. And I think this is interesting because it's pretty much very closely related to what happened to Tatiana and her Stop Telling Women to Smile street art series. Yes. Spike Lee came across one of her posters and posted a photo of it on Instagram and said, who is this artist? And through her putting her work out into the street, that is how she was brought onto this project. Amazing. It's amazing. Um, So the second season um, of the show moves away from solely addressing Nola's romantic relationships and starts addressing deeper and important conversations about how Nola feels as a black woman living in America And she is able to start having these conversations now with other Black artists as well. And Tatiana makes a cameo, too, in the first season, but in the second season as well. Yeah, and there are actually a lot of um, other artists that make cameos, too, such as Carrie Mae Weems. And Amy Sherald. Amy Sherald, yeah. Um, So there are also a lot of Easter eggs in regards to Spike Lee's career as a filmmaker, such as the episode dedicated to the Purple People Party, a celebration and honorary event for Prince in which he actually helped to organize in real life. Like, it is a real event that you can go to in New York. Or Nola's excursion to Coney Island and Martha's Vineyard are also a direct reference to his 1998 film, He Got Game. Um, So an article I found from The Observer offered an interesting perspective, mentioning because each episode poses so many questions such as, how exactly does one balance the classic struggle between art and commerce without selling one's soul? How do you perceive Black culture output in the face of gentrification and other destructive socio-political forces? And how is every and each character dealing with these issues, right? So in turn, this means that we don't get a lot of character development. And this is what this article poses. And although I do agree about the possible lack of character development in the second season, I think about what we spoke about in Little Fires Everywhere and how in this case, Spike Lee could be communicating that it's not his job to answer these questions for us, but it it is his job to pose them. So I think that's something to think about when you watch the series. And I go into a little bit of depth of the plot because I think it's extremely pertinent and the show as a whole just raises some very valuable questions. Yeah. And the show is just like 
also beautiful to watch. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like Nola is so fantastic and the cast is amazing, but aesthetically it's just so oh, it's so good. I just really like it. Definitely watch it on Netflix. Yeah. And it also might be cool if you watched it after you kind of look at Tatiana's work. So maybe like scroll through her Instagram or look on her website look at her work and then see how that is impacted and how Nola uses that and navigates this artwork. Yeah, so I wanted to mention too that Tatiana has a book out now called Stop Telling Women to Smile, Stories of Street Harassment and How We're, Ta- how we're Taking Back Our Power. Um, if you're interested in learning more about her work and the women behind these drawings, I highly encourage that you um, give this book a read. Yeah, yeah. sure. So to kind of conclude this episode, as Bianca stated in the beginning, and as you all know, we are here to talk about arts and pop culture, right? But the larger umbrella of this podcast and what holds the artists and the work of art and the stories and histories and current happenings that we talk about together is that art and art history is how we make sense of this world. It is how we watch movies or TV shows. It is how we engage in dialogue with others. It is how we express ourselves and navigate understandings of human conditions and universal experiences. When you think about what art can be, thinking of why it exists, what is it communicating to us, Art is a record of time and of history. Whether that experience is personal or collective, What we want to be doing on this podcast and with our own art and research is just simply make sure we're sharing our understandings of the world with you and vice versa. Art and culture is a communicative process and we believe that continual dialogue and conversation and exchanges are so vital to continue growing and realizing the core of our own interests. This is why we make and talk about art for the good and the bad, the funny, the serious, and the trivial and the important topics that take place throughout history and, of course, into the future. We also want to acknowledge that in this episode, we are aware and conscious by choosing artists and sharing these stories. We are not trying to perpetuate the idea of tokenism. In other words, we are not deliberately choosing or cherry-picking these featured artists from underrepresented groups in order to suggest the appearance of equality. Mm -hmm. As Bianca and I mentioned in our past episode, we have both been interested and impacted by the history of protest art, specifically in regards to the feminist movements. And as we evolve this podcast, it is not about changing our interests, but diving deeper and adding to them and learning as we go. We are choosing them because these works of protest matter, because we want to better ourselves, and because we are listening to the needs of our listeners and helping to share content in which we all need to seek better education. Yeah, absolutely. I think that also in the first episode I may have mentioned I had originally thought about doing my thesis on protest imagery, but it just felt more like a dissertation project because of the depth and all these different concepts. So for research purposes as well, I mean, I'm so excited to be talking about protest art again, and I just love learning more about it and bringing that into contemporary context and bring that into a popular presence. I think everybody should know about protest art and what it means and what it means to different communities. As we talked about the I Am A Man, that is a protest sign specific to the Black community, and it's important to acknowledge that. Um, I think lastly, before we end, we wanted to share some easy things that you can do, like following different accounts and adding more diversity to the pages and the feeds that you're seeing every day. And this doesn't mean changing your interests. Um, It doesn't mean completely changing who you are, but you can add to that. You know, if you're interested in cooking like I am or baking or whatever or movies or film follow different people, people who are in that field who are unlike you. So we just wanted to share some of our favorite accounts that we've been following. Gianna, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so Glenn Ligon, who uses intertextuality, he has an Instagram account. Some artists who I have studied in relationship to my 
sculptural practice are Leonardo Drew. There's also an amazing Art 21 video on him. Uh, there's also Wanjichi Mutu and Napita Montambu. Uh, Wanjishi Mutu is a Kenyan-American artist and Mantabu is a South African artist. Also, Tatiana Fazla Lizade also has an Instagram account. And the amazing Amy Sherald, who did the Michelle Obama portrait, also has an account. And then Kimberly Rose Drew has a new book out. She was also just on a podcast. She talks a lot about how she navigates the world of art. She's a curator and writer. You can follow Lyndon Barwa. We talked about him on our last episode. Uh, Naima Lowe. You can also follow different museums. So follow the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Museum of the African Diaspora. We will also link those on our Instagram. We'll tag them and so you can easily find them. I also just wanted to highlight some other people that I really love. I want to learn from other people in the kitchen and how to cook. Uh, so if you are interested in cooking or the art of food, you can follow Samin Nosrat. She has the uh, Netflix special Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And on Samin's page, she like did a whole follow train of just like follow these incredible chefs. Some of my favorites are Justice of the Pies. Oh my god, I just <laughs> love her page so much. Sweet Potato Soul, also people from The Great British Baking Show, Nadia Hussein, Selassie, Liam Charles, uh, Cheryl Day, and Kia Damon are really great chefs I like as well. So we know that there's a lot going on right now, and we just want to say that we so appreciate all the people that we've been talking to, everyone who's been listening and communicating with us, and... I think while we don't want to add to any noise, we want to have meaningful and inclusive conversations all the time. We are just excited to continue to work on those. So again, you can always contact us by email, artpoptalk at gmail.com or across our social. It's also Pride Month. So happy Pride Month to all of our LGBTQIA friends and family. We love all of you and we're just excited to keep talking about all this cool stuff. So we're grateful for you all, for the community that we're building. And with that, I think we will talk to you on Tuesday. Thank you, everyone. Bye.